Okay, today's scripture is Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. All right, thank you so much, Lauren. It's good to be with you today. Nick, we love you, brother. Thank you for the love, that's mutual. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for how you and Katie come on out to fill in and help us out leading worship. We're very, very grateful. Uh, this is a wonderful text in front of us today as we continue to make our way through, through Galatians here. And let me start with just asking a question. Um, and that question is this. What, what would you say is the truest thing about you? There's many things we could each say, right? For me, I could say, you know, maybe it's that I'm a dad or a husband, or a pastor. It's kind of funny with uh, baseball starting back up and I'm out there coaching, I feel like I'm a living cliche with like half of the other dads out there remembering the glory days and our identity as baseball players. <laughs> a little more true than I wish to care to admit to you, but uh, what, what would you say is true, the truest thing of you? Now, here we are in a Christian church gathering so I imagine many of you are thinking right now, Pastor, I got this one, got the, got the answer. The truest thing about me is that I'm Christian. It's like, okay, good, yeah. But what does that mean? And what does that entail? Uh, the, the incredible thing about the text we're looking at today is it takes, takes the gospel, this focus of the book of Galatians, and really the whole Bible, a little bit further. Um, because it seems to me that for many Christians, dare I say most Christians, what we can do, even if inadvertently, is think about when it comes to the gospel, we think about it in, in, in negative terms. So what I mean by that is when we receive faith, when we receive what Christ has done, we, we understand that he has taken things off of us, right? So, so my sins have been taken off of me. My, my guilt has been taken off of me. These are wonderful and true promises, but that's not all that happens when we put our faith in Jesus. Uh, we find that not only are things taking, taken off of us, but actually when we put our faith in Jesus, at the very same moment, God puts things onto us. And to use some of the language of what we're talking about today from our text is he, he clothes us, says in verse 27, and then chapter 4, four verse 5, our key word for today, he adopts us. So what we see is, when we receive Christ by faith, not only does God take things off of us, not only does he pardon us of our sins, forgive us, 
and release us of our guilt, but he also puts things on us. He also adopts us. So today we're going we're gonna to look at the wonderful promise of adoption in the scriptures and understand what that really means and then try to understand a bit of those implications. So what is adoption and then what does it mean for our lives? Let's pray and then, then we'll jump in. Father, as we come to you today with this topic of adoption in your scriptures, we, we can very easily take for granted that very word in which I started this prayer, Father. You are our Father. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. I, I pray that today for each of us, not, not because of me or through me even so much as through the power of your spirit from your word, you would open up to each of us a little bit more of who you are and what you've done for us and who you call us to be. Wonderful as it is, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so up until this point in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has, talking, has been talking a lot about justification, how we are justified by God. And as I've said, we've been talking about this quite a bit. So by way of review, what I thought we'd do today is put up a Westminster Shorter Catechism definition of justification. And if any of you guys are interested in catechism, see me afterwards, I can tell you more about this. But all this to say is this definition is just about as good as it gets, as it's uh, pulled out from the scripture. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, so caused to us, attributed to us, and received by faith. So there's a lot going on there, and we've been unpacking that as we've been going through the book of Galatians, because that's what Paul has been saying, that very word, God justify us, ju justifies us. But in its very simple form, it just means that in Christ we are made in right standing before God. Okay, that's justification. Now, today we're going to talk about adoption. Here's the Westminster Shorter Catechism definition of adoption. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Okay, so today we're going to talk about that. And actually, catechisms are only helpful to the degree that they, they pull out from the Scripture. So in, in large part, that catechism definition is pulled out from the text that we looked at today. I mean, there's other places it talks about adoption, but we're going to unpack that today. What, what is adoption and what are its implications? Okay, so first thought from our text, to be adopted means in Christ we are made children of God. Okay? Verse 26 starts with, so in Christ, you are children of God through faith. Now, this might seem kind of like a generic thing for Paul to say, but he's actually saying something quite specific and, 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 and important. He's saying, and he's emphasizing that when you become a follower of Jesus, you are adopted as a child. You undergo a legal change of status. Okay, there's this legal change of status he's, he's highlighting. And in fact, the word that's used here in this text is not, in the original language, the word child, but actually the word son. Okay, so he's literally saying, in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. And normally, what I, I wouldn't bother sharing this information with you, because generally speaking, in the ancient Greek, when the word son is used, we translate it into children, because that's the way they use it, just kind of all-encompassing. Okay. Fair enough. But actually, in this text, it's important to understand that he actually is very explicitly using the word son, and we'll, we'll unpack that. 
And look down at verse 5 of chapter 4. He, he highlights this. He says, when you're adopted, you're adopted into sonship, he says. You could also translate that, you are adopted with the full rights of sons. Okay, what are we saying? Paul was writing in the context and with the backdrop of ancient Roman society, which had a very real practice of adoption, a legal change of status. So he was writing very much with that in mind and making these points with with that in mind. Uh, One of the most well-known cases of adoption in the ancient Roman world was the case of Caesar Augustus. I wonder if any of you knew this. Caesar Augustus actually ruled during the time of Jesus' birth. He's there and referenced in Luke chapter 2. Caesar Augustus was originally known as Octavian, and he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, of course, the guy who conquered a lot and just ended up reigning over, over Rome. Well, after Julius Caesar's assassination, Octavian discovered that in Julius Caesar's will, he, as the granduncle, had willed it that uh, he would adopt uh, Caesar Augustus or Octavian as, as his heir. And so Caesar Augustus actually became the, the Caesar be, out of an act of adoption, which was interesting in the times. I won't do a little history lesson here, but it was interesting because a lot of other people were thought to have kind of taken up after Julius Caesar after that happened. But it was very clear in the will that his grandnephew, Octavian, was to become Caesar. And that was honored in, you know, history, history follows that. It was a legal act of adoption. Now, does that mean Paul was thinking of that very specific case as he was writing this letter? That's not what we're saying. He very well could have been. But that practice and that understanding of adoption to that level in ancient Roman society for the adoption of sons is very much what Paul is talking about. And so we learn that when God sent his son into the world to die for you, it wasn't just to save you, as if that weren't enough. God sent his son into the world to save you and in order to also adopt you legally into his family as his son, as his daughter, and with all the security and rights that are related to that. Now, this was absolutely radical for Paul's day and age. I mean, just insanely radical for him to have said this because this principle of adoption into the sonship, as was understood with that Roman practice backdrop, was being applied, as Paul is writing here, to all Christians. Meaning, this practice of adoption, this legal status of sonship with the full rights, as he was kind of applying the analogy of Roman citizenship, applied to all followers of Jesus, not just men, in other words, but also to women. And that was insanely radical at the time, because I don't have to remind you, the ancient world wasn't known for being all that great towards women. In fact, women at the time had very little, if no rights, at all. But Paul here was saying, this is true of anybody who's put their faith in Jesus. God looks at you as his adopted child. Now, let's consider this in perspective a little bit. Like, what, what are we talking about? What does this mean? There are two instances in Jesus' life and ministry that are profoundly helpful in understanding what we're, what we're talking about here. Two instances, when he was baptized and when he was up on the mount during something that theologians call his transfiguration, when basically kind of pulled back the curtain, showed his true glory, okay? So in these very two special moments, we saw there were also occasions when God the Father opened up heaven, if you will, and spoke audibly. 
But not just audibly to Jesus, because Jesus made it clear many places throughout his life and teachings that he understood what God the Father was speaking to him all the time. He didn't need an audio, you know, uh, speaking to, to understand what he was saying. So, in other words, God, wasn't, God the Father in these precious moments wasn't just speaking to Jesus audibly. He was speaking to be overheard. Does that, does that make sense? And so, when he spoke to Jesus audibly to be overheard, not just then and there, but through the ages preserved in our scripture, he said in these moments, these special moments, this is my son whom I love in whom I am well pleased. Think about that for a second. I cannot think of more precious words spoken from any more precious of a source God saying to God the Son, this is my Son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. And what Paul is telling us, actually, what God through Paul is telling us is this is precisely how he feels about you and me when we put our faith in Jesus. He looks at you like his adopted child. God didn't just send his Son to the world to save you, but to bring you into the family and to help you know that that Adoption, that legal status, is secure. As much as you could think of how secure it was in Roman day status, he's saying, take that to the infinite level and understand God's involved. Because it's not based, this adoption, as we've covered throughout Galatians, on you or me. Right? Remember the gospel? The gospel is completely based on what he has done for you and me that we just receive by faith. Meaning, one of the implications of being adopted as a son and daughter, a child of God, is that you are more secure in this truest thing about you than in any other way in life. But we often don't live that way, do we? It, it means this is secure. You, you, this is the truest thing of you and, and secure even when you doubt it. Maybe you think, eh, I'm not sure God loves me that much. Maybe you, you question or you hear other voices kind of getting in the way of you feeling like you are his son, his daughter, whom he loves, in whom he is well pleased. I mean, it's one thing to come on Sunday and go like, yeah, I believe that. It's a whole other thing to live that out with the security of that true, truth. Because that thing, that privilege is true of you, whether or not you fully grasp it or live or feel like it or not. And that's the incredible thing we're talking about today. That's one implication as far as its, it's, its security. And actually, to kind of uh, deep dive into that a little bit further, uh, do you remember one of Jesus' most famous parables, the story of the uh, prodigal son? We mention it from time to time. It's his most famous story. In that story, the young brother takes his inheritance from his dad early before he died. Okay, it's kind of, a, kind of a big deal, kind of a major slap in the face. Takes the inheritance before he dies. The father lets him go off and, and do that. Lives the licentious life, okay? As Jesus tells the story, it's not long before he hits rock bottom. And when he hits rock bottom, he comes to his senses and realizes, oh my goodness, I, I can't keep doing this. I need to go back to my dad's house. And he starts to work up a little speech that he's going to prepare and give to his dad when he sees him again. He's like, okay, here's what I'm going to say to my dad when I see him. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Would you receive me back as a servant? Reasoning that 
being a servant in his dad's house would be way better than the situation he'd got himself into. So he's rehearsing that speech, kind of preparing, and he's, as he's walking back, well, his dad sees him from afar, if you know the story, runs to the son, and the son begins his little speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the father in that precise moment cuts him off. I've never actually noticed that before. But it's right after he said the word, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. The father didn't want to hear anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing for the son to be remorseful and the father to help see that he's remorseful and he's coming back to his senses. Okay, good. But the father was not having any of this, he's no longer worthy to be my son stuff. Is that, is that tracking? To put this in perspective, say, you're, say you have a good father, a good human dad, and they're you know, his son or whatever messes up in just an egregious way, comes back to the dad and just like, I mess up. A good dad is not going to go, yeah, you're no longer worthy of me, my son. You got that worked out. And that's a human dad. God, the father didn't just die to save you, to take away your sins, to pardon you, to accept you as righteousness. He died also to bring you into his family to adopt you as his son as in his daughter whom he loves in whom he is well pleased because he looks at what jesus has done for you on your behalf on the cross so why then do we constantly question that say for instance when we are overcome by criticism why does criticism start to take you out takes me out why it's because we're not living from the implication that we are the beloved children of god otherwise What does it matter, people criticizing us or you? Now, I'm not saying criticism is all bad. I mean, that that actually helps us put criticism in its proper place. We can listen to it for what it is, but not be taken out by it. Is this this making sense? If you're the child of God, what do other people have over you? But we regularly let them have that power over us, which doesn't make sense. You are secure. The truest thing about you is you are the child of God. And the one who actually matters most of all by an infinite margin thinks the world of you, has forgiven you, has brought you into his family. If this is true of us, if this is the truest thing of us, why, do, why are we so taken out by a sense of failure? I mean, in light of being the child of God, what is failure? I mean, it's like, right? And yet we constantly get taken out by failure. Why? Because we're not living out the implication. We're not remembering that we are the child of God, whom he loves, in whom he is well pleased. Why, when we mess up? Does it take us so long to admit that we're wrong and start moving again in the right direction? Well, it's because you see the implications of it. You are secure in this legal change of status that God is having in that you are his adopted child. You are his son. You are his daughter. Uh, One more quick implication and we'll move on to the next thought. Look at verse 6 in chapter 4. Paul says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Okay, one of the implications we're going to talk about now is the truest thing about you, that you are a child of God, ought to impact the way you relate to God. But often we don't relate to him as we ought to based on what he is, what what he's done for us. Uh, Chances are, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard a treatment on the word Abba. Uh, If you're here new to church, I'll speak on it real quickly. But the the word Abba is an ancient Aramaic word. It's a diminutive of of our English word father. Okay, so it'd be, an English equivalent would be the word daddy. Okay, 
I have a, a pastor mentor friend who actually often will pray, hey, daddy, thank you for, like, and he'll just move on from there. And I realize it's, it's interesting kind of exercise for me because when he does that, I'm always a little like taken aback because the word daddy is like, the point is it's the most intimate of ways we can call a person, right? Or like of the Lord. It's the most intimate, precious way that we can call out to our Father. So much so that even when my mentor friend, and I understand the theology behind it, I'm still like, whoa, that's too, that's too precious. Both of my children still call me daddy. It's not going to last much longer. I'm actually surprised. Well, I won't go into it. <laughs> you better believe I'm going to remember. I can, this side of being a dad, I'm going to remember. Boy, this is catching me off guard here a little bit. I'm going to remember for a lifetime how they called me daddy. I'm hoping at least one calls me daddy forever, but it's, it's, it's a term of incredible endearment. It's the most intimate connection. But what's more is Paul doesn't just say, that he, gives us, he gives us a spirit to call Abba, Father, Daddy. He, he, he gives us, the word he uses is cries out. Our English translation is calls out. The, the force of the original language is it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's a major cry. It's an intense cry. But I feel like most of our prayers, if we kind of use this analogy, are probably more the timid whisper of, hey, big guy up there, are you listening? To over, overplay it, overcharacterize it. But God says, if you are my child, call out. I've given you my spirit to call out to me, Daddy, Abba. Father. But how many of you would say this is characteristic of your prayer life? He's your father. He wants to, he wants to listen to you like, like you're his son and daughter because guess what? You are. Jesus didn't come to die to save you. He died to bring you into his family, to make you his adopted child. Yeah, that's the first thought, to be adopted is in Christ. We were made his children. Second one is in uh, to be adopted means in Christ we were made brothers and sisters. Okay, we were made brothers and sisters. Galatians 3, 28, very famous verse, says this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This, too, is just an absolutely radical thought. First, let's remember the context and the occasion for Paul writing this, okay? Remember, he had gone throughout the region of Galatia. That's modern-day Turkey, kind of southwest of, along the Mediterranean Sea, that region. Gone ar around the Galatian border, that region, preaching the gospel and starting churches in this Gentile territory. Gentile, non-Jewish territory. And people were coming to faith. Gentiles were putting their faith in Jesus. Churches were starting. And then Paul, after establishing a church, would move on to the next town in the region. Rinse, repeat. Only problem was there were some false teachers traveling in his wake, which is why Paul's writing this letter. He's, these false teachers were coming along to those same established churches and saying, hey, yeah, you do need to believe Paul's gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and that you can receive salvation by faith, but you must also, they added, accept Jewish practices, live by Jewish norms, particularly circumcision. And then and only then will you be received by God and received into the Jewish Christian community. 
And, you know, we've been spending a good chunk of time in Galatians getting to this point where Paul's been addressing that over and over and from any number of angles. I won't get into all of it again. That's what we've been talking about. He's been kind of getting at the logic of the gospel, that if you add anything to what Jesus has done, received by faith alone, you really lose the gospel entirely. So he's been hitting on that from kind of the logical, theological side of things. Well, now he gets into one of these incredible implications of it. He's saying, if you understand that, oh, Galatians, oh, Gentile Christians, you understand that there is now neither Jew nor Gentile. These distinctions that these false teachers are coming in saying, there's there's no distinction in this regard when it comes to fellowship in, in Christ. In fact, he takes it even further and says, again, this radical thought in the ancient world. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one In Christ Jesus. He's saying, and we have to do this really quickly here, in Christ there is no division based on race. In Christ there's no division based on rank. We'll unpack that. In Christ there is no division based on gender. Okay? So first, in Christ there's no division based on race. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all equal. We are all equally in need of salvation. We are all equally in need of outside help in our inability to receive salvation. And we are all equal in God's free grace in Christ. And man, when you start to think about that in terms of the divisions racially, culturally, around our world, it's just, oh, does the world need this right now? And in Christ, there is no division based on rank, neither slave nor free. Nearly every society throughout all of history has developed its own class or caste system. Circumstances of birth, wealth, privilege, and education have long divided people from one another. But Paul here is saying is in Christ, this sort of snobbery or sense of moral superiority over each other in this regard just flies in the face of the gospel. And then in Christ, there is no division on gender, nor is there male and female. We've already hit upon this a little bit, but women were nearly always despised in the ancient world, even in Judaism, and not infrequently mistreated or even exploited. But the assertion that's being made here is that in Christ, we are all one and we are all equal. Which, by the way, in all of these regards, goes back to the first page on the Bible, or at least, depending on your font size, first few pages, where it says God created us in his image. In his image, he created us male and female. We are equal and one. Now, it's worth noting that this great statement and sentiment of verse 28 does not mean that, say, racial, social, sexual distinctions are then obliterated. They're just not there anymore. Christians are not literally colorblind so that they don't notice a person's skin color, say, nor are they unaware of the cultural or educational background from which people come, nor do they ignore a person's gender. There's much to be celebrated, in fact, when it comes to God-given distinctives. What we're saying here when Christ has abolished them is not that they don't exist, it's that they are not dividing walls of love and fellowship. Uh, There are many distinctives that are actually wonderful, God-given, loving things that we ought to celebrate, but they do not, ought not create barriers. 
And rather, we, we recognize that each of us are equal brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. What are the implications? Too many to finish with the rest of our time, okay? <laughs> too, too many. But let's just, let's just get to the heart of it, because I think that's what we want to at least touch upon. And, and that is to build upon what we've already been saying, that the truest thing of you and me, when we put our faith in Jesus, is that we are children of God, but also brothers and sisters in Christ, which means all these other identities, all these other things that are true of us, wonderful as they may be, are not the identity, are not our main identity. And that's wonderful because this identity, this truest thing about us, is the one place where we get unconditional love and really live out the gospel. Uh, to have a little fun and perhaps be a little awkward with this, if you look at verse 28, essentially, if I put myself here, I'm a white pastor and a dude, okay? There we go. I told you it's going to be a little awkward. But what we're saying, though, is whatever that may be case, whatever may be the case of me, true of me, even like former baseball player, all, sort of all comes underneath that I am a child of God, that I'm Christian, I'm a follower of his, and, and that I am brother to those who are in the faith. By the way, this is not the scope of the context that also bears out in terms of loving your neighbor as yourself, but we're just sticking with the body of Christ right now. It means, practically speaking, that the thing that's truest of me, it means it affects my relationship with God and my relationship with his church, brothers and sisters of Christ, and that should impact everything. Meaning you guys, especially expressed in the local church, but also out there, ought to be what I strive as family to love and care for and serve. Is this making sense? Now, as soon as we start to say that, we all probably can recognize that that's not necessarily going to be always the easiest thing to do. Especially when we start getting outside these walls. Say, and it, Hey, if you've ever been a part of a family, you know that it's hard to live in a loving way towards family, right? Even the best of families struggle to love each other from time to time. We're called to look to love and care for each other. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be BFFs with all the people who believe in Jesus out there, okay? But it also means you, you and I better not just write them off as just, well, whatever. We're called to love them, serve them, care for them, even as, frankly, we need others of the body of believers to love us when we don't deserve. Is this making sense? Um, if you think about it in more positive terms, and even kind of like down the road, this is a little bit of like what heaven's going to be about. I, I, I personally think Christians, myself included, don't really think about heaven too much. I think if anything, like, well, I'll speak for myself. I, I almost feel guilty thinking about heaven, right? It's like, oh, I can't think about, you know. But what we're saying here today is this is the truest thing of you now. This is the truest thing of you into eternity. And guess what? In the next life, this is going to be face-to-face -face reality for you. The main thing about next life is you're going to be face-to-face -face with your heavenly Father. You're going to know it's the truest thing about you. There's no big doubt, no tr working that out. But so, too, your relationship to love and serve and care for others. By the way, in the next life, sin won't be involved, so that'll be awesome. But, but there's going to be just a, a, a tremendous, diverse showing of all of the people that God has made. It's going to be beautiful, wonderful. That's why Revelation talks about it. It's going to be every tongue, tribe, and nation represented. Not just like here and now, but like throughout generations. It's going to be incredible. 
But that starts to work itself out here and now. And I would just say this, in case it's helpful kind of getting our head around this. Like, I, I've had, actually had the privilege of, of thinking about uh, uh, getting to experience this a little bit. I've had the privilege of, of traveling a little bit of the world, living for at least short periods of time in places like Mexico, uh, England, um, Kazakhstan, a little bit longer in China. And one of the things that, I mean, you think about that list. I mean, that's, you know, there's a diversity in that cultural list there. What's been incredible for me is I've got to experience how when it comes to brothers and sisters in the faith, like attending churches there and just getting to know folks and that sort of thing, despite these cultural differences, language barriers and all the rest of it, in times like that, I've experienced, yeah, we don't see everything. I, you know, there are a bunch of differences that we can kind of figure out as there are even more similarities that are profoundly beautiful and incredible because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. In some instances, when language is like super broken in terms of translation, there's a power there. In fact, I was just talking to somebody this morning who was telling me he went to um, uh, South America, I believe, and was attending a church there and kind of experienced what we're talking about. We are called in the, the truest thing about us as children of God and as brothers and sisters to look to love and care for others. So how can you do that? How can you look to love and, and care for, for those of us followers, starting in the local expression of the, of the church, but then also out into, into the community. Okay, so in Christ, we are made children of God. In Christ, we are made brothers and sisters. And then finally, in Christ, we're made, quote, heirs according to the promise. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, look down at verse uh, 29. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, what does that mean, Abraham's seed? Okay. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, first book of the Bible, chapter 12, you'll see uh, one of the most important texts in the scriptures. I mean, they're all scriptures, it's all God's word, but there's an, it's an incredibly important text in terms of God's calling of his people, okay? He calls Abraham, and in calling Abraham, he's calling all of his people. It's a, it's a, it's a calling of that degree. And even if you didn't grow up in church, I, I imagine you might know of the story where God takes Abraham out at at night to look at the sky, and he says, hey, as, as much as there are stars in the sky, so your offspring will be. Well, what the scriptures go on to teach us, including, by the way, in other parts of Galatians, is that that promise of blessing to Abraham and his posterity was not just for his flesh and blood lineage, but would be for all people who put their faith ultimately in Jesus, followed him by faith. And so, what we see then is that promise, that blessing to Abraham now applies to those who've put their faith in Jesus. What, what is that promise? If I can summarize Genesis 12, it's that God chooses to bless us and bless us in order to be a blessing, that, that all nations will be blessed through you is how he says it, okay? So, that's, that we are heirs to that. And you know what? We actually have more perspective and profound understanding of what that blessing is. In Christ, we are adopted as children. Abraham didn't even understand the extent of that incredible promise. So that's eternity with the Lord as his child, brothers and sisters in the faith. Okay, that's part of the promise. But then also part of that promise, heirs to that promise, is blessed to be a blessing, which is our mission. As followers of Jesus, it's to take this blessing, namely that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of anybody who would receive him by faith, and not just to save them, but to adopt them as their children if they would receive it. We get to take that as followers of Jesus to those around us. And just so we're abundantly clear, not so that we can get into God's good graces, 
You know what I mean? It's like we don't go out and tell people about Jesus so that, uh-oh, we can get, you know, we need to save ourselves. I mean, that's what all of Galatians has been about. The pressure is off. We don't tell people because, oh, we have to. We tell people because we get to do it. We tell people about this blessing because we are children of, of God. Brothers and sisters of faith. It's like we get to tell that. And what's more is we get to tell that together in community. Even in a place like the Silicon Valley. To the ends of the earth, well, to all nations, like, well, here, it starts here, and frankly, a lot of the nations are coming here too, which is kind of cool, but, and we have an opportunity right in front of us to get really practical about it. Lauren was up here talking about Easter. For whatever reason, in our culture, Easter is still an occasion for people who don't normally attend church to maybe, just maybe, go to church. And you know what's so cool about that is Easter is what it's all about. I mean, it's about the resurrection of Jesus, Paul in another letter says, man, if the resurrection didn't happen, then all of this is useless, this faith in Christ stuff. It's all futile. But if it did happen, which current family it did, it changes everything. Christ saves us. He also adopts us. It's like, and one of the things we can do practically together as a church is invite people out. So I just encourage you to think about that. Maybe, I love how the team purposely didn't just put one card there for you. Take a couple. Can you commit to thinking about, to, to, to inviting a couple of friends or neighbors or other coaches on the baseball field? I don't know. And, and to praying for them. Now, look, we can't control people's yes, but we can control the invite. And consider this, guys, as we collectively do this as followers of Jesus, as brothers and sisters, and as we set the table on Easter with all the extra festivities and food, I mean, think about the impact that God can do that. Now, it's God doing that, but we get to join him in that work. So I just encourage you to take advantage. I mean, we've got opportunity right in front of us. We are also, if we're adopted, heirs according to the promise, as we are also children of God and brothers and sisters, made brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus did not just come into this world to die on the cross to save you or me. He died in order to also bring you into his family to adopt you as his child so that God the Father now looks at you and me. It's incredible. It's mind-boggling. I can't get my head around it. Looks at you or me and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. And that is the truest thing of you, even if you doubt it. Do you or I deserve that? No, we don't deserve it. Do you or I tend to live that out all that well? No. Typically not. But guess what? It's still the truest thing about us. That's the goodness of our Father who loves you deeply and has given, him, given you his spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. So how can you lean into that promise, this promise of adoption, even this week? And how can we collectively, individually and collectively, together with him, be heirs according to this promise, making the same good news and gospel known? Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It blows us away, Father, that we can, we can, we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, Daddy. It blows us away that you sent your Son 
out of your grace and mercy and love to die for us. And not just to save us, but to adopt us and bring us into your family as your beloved sons and daughters. And what's more is you've given us each other as brothers and sisters. Now, Father, we confess we do not live out of this truest thing about us anywhere near as we ought. In our relationship with you, in our responses to circumstances that are challenging, and in our relationships to one another, and yet even there, your grace rests upon us. So, Father, would you help us through the love of Jesus and his power begin to live out the implications of us just a little bit more, that we are your sons, we are your daughters, we are brothers and sisters in faith. And, Father, would you help us take this mission as heirs to this wonderful promise and make it known to the people around us here in Silicon Valley. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity with Easter coming up. Lord, would you do a mighty work doing even more incredible things than we can hope or imagine, helping people hear the gospel and receive it. Not for the sake of us feeling good about what we've done, but for the sake of your glory and for the sake of them receiving you as their father. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.